This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, is the Matt McNeil Show. Squeaky here. Uh, Matt, Brett. Hi, Brett. How are you today? I'm all right. How about you? Uh, I'm doing well. Is it just me, or do you feel weird that it's raining? <laughs> yeah, it's a very gloomy kind of uh, April sort of day. Not necessarily temp-wise, well, no, but it just looks like April or May out there. It, it, spring well, shower. It, it, well, it, it's, we haven't had rain. I was looking at Sven's uh, Bring Me the News forecast, right? He said it's the most rain the airport got since March. March. It's August, man. That's the part which is really weird. That's the part which I have a hard time with is this two months, three months of insanely dry, abnormal conditions. And then all of a sudden we're going to get, you know, it sounds like got storms today, storms on Wednesday. We're going to get like a month worth of rain in four or five days. That's the crazy. That's that's the part which is I this is this is the climate change part that I just can't stand. So you didn't bike here today, did you? No, no, did not bike to uh bike here today. Although I think it's supposed to clear out later uh later on this afternoon/evening. slash evening. I think you're going to be fine tomorrow tomorrow the day after that. You know, you're you're a better person than I. That looks like a washout, yeah. Yeah, that Wednesday looks really rough. 9529466205. Did you go to Ed Sheeran? I did not get a chance to see him. Uh, Would have been good to see, though. Did you go to the Lego store where he was apparently working? Wish I was because, yeah, that was kind of fun to see him there and uh, not expecting to see him at the Lego store. That would have been weird if he were there. Well, he looks like Ed Sheeran. Oh, it is Ed Sheeran. (laughs) He has a pretty unique look. Uh, It's it's, it's one of my children says, he just doesn't look well. No, he's just just pale. He's just a really, really white guy. You know, that's, that's Ed Sheeran. I thought that was pretty cool. Apparently, he has a song about Legos, Legos, so that's why he was at the Lego store and actually was there for a while and performed and everything. It's like, that's kind of nice of him. Here's here's the thing. I, I'm going to give Ed Sheeran a lot of credit because I know a lot of people that went to U.S. Bank to catch him. Biggest show they've ever had there at U.S. Bank now. It's 72,000 people showed up for that. Um, An outstanding thing. And if you want to know the truth, it's the palate cleanser that I think we need after um, what happened with Taylor Swift. And and if I want to – one thing about the Taylor Swift concert, I've talked a little bit about this, but I don't think I've really explained what my theory is on this. So I'm going to take a quick sec here, okay? So, you know, you, I had the Ed Sheeran concert uh, Saturday night. A lot of people thought it was pretty good. Um, my son went to it. Uh, my My brother and sister-in-law went to it. Uh, we, uh, you know, I, I, I thought about it, but I, I didn't know if tickets were available. Apparently they were and relatively affordable. Sure. Upper levels of the top deck. But I mean, it was still there were tickets available. I think they were before all the service fees and all that stuff. They were like $16, you know, $20 tickets, something like that, which is a, that's fine. You're going to go see like Ed Sheeran live. You're not going to I'll pay that to go sit in a nosebleed seat in a heartbeat. So. That's a real appreciation, I think, kind of the fans. Now, granted, I think this is Ticketmaster on best behavior at this point. 
because they realize that, and they should be broken up. I'm sorry. Ticketmaster, if you've not watched the John Oliver last week tonight takedown of Ticketmaster, you should because it was, it, it is brutal in its, in its entirety. Now, when it came to Taylor Swift, a lot of people like, well, this wasn't Taylor Swift. This was Ticketmaster. And one of the things that John Oliver points out is that Ticketmaster has figured out that as long as a portion of the proceeds from these scalp tickets that they themselves scalp and then their own reseller sells again, if part of the proceeds goes to the entertainer, the entertainer will go along with it. That their their integrity about the uh, their fans kind of only goes as far as the you know in some cases seven eight you know you know uh, figure check that gets scrawled out depending on the venue on the resale market. Three I think three thousand dollars was the most part, but you got close. They were looking for you know close to five figures. The night of the first concert. I took uh, the time to pull up the reseller market. The vast majority of the tickets that were available were tickets where you couldn't even see Taylor Swift from the seats outside of maybe, maybe 10% of the show. You were looking, you, you, you just were kind of on the far side of the stage, and so you kind of had a really bad view and so you're basically going there to listen to the concert. That evening before the, the, the starting acts opened up, the tickets were still $325, $350 apiece for seats you could not see the show for. I paid attention as the, the, the opening acts went and then Taylor, around the time Taylor Swift took the stage. And the tickets did start coming down. Particularly when Taylor, clearly when Taylor Swift took the stage, there were a few seats that went down to about a hundred dollars. They were immediately gone, but there were a lot of seats, a lot of seats where the price went down to about one seventy per ticket, and then just never went down. Even an hour and a half into the show, into Taylor Swift's, you know, you know, you know segment, it was still a hundred and seventy dollars per ticket, and. This is, I will admit, a theory, but this is, I'm going to run with this. I, that tells me when it's 170, that's not people desperate to get rid of their tickets that are willing, you know, that that's what the resale market is. It's like, oh, I can't use them. Oh, I, you know, I, I want to try to get a few bucks from them. There comes a point where if it's legitimately people just trying to resell the tickets, all right, fine, I'm asking 300, but I'll get it down to 100 just to get them out the door. I'm still making, you know, you know, 60 bucks per ticket. Let's go with that. That did, yeah. You know, that that occasionally happened, but the vast majority of the seats that were still available never dropped below one hundred and seventy. And that told me that was corporate. Those were the corporate ticket resellers, the co- the corporate scalpers, the ticket master system that they've got in place by design. And here's the crazy part: is they, my guess is that day they had a meeting and said. All right, what's the bare minimum we're going to sell these for? Uh, let's sell them for 170. That'll be our bare minimum price. It tells you how much money they made. So they basically you know took a hit on 200, 300, maybe even up to 1000 seats for Taylor Swift at 170 bucks a piece. They took a hit on all those. 
because they had already made up so much freaking money on the resale market for all the other tickets they had out there that they basically could take a wash on all those seats. And it didn't matter. They already got their payday. They already made a mint. And and like I said, maybe this is the reason why Ed Sheeran seemed to go so smoothly and people were able to even still the day before the day of the show were able to get tickets at a relatively reasonable rate is that Ticketmaster has realized. Well, OK, Ticketmaster has realized until the next big show comes through that they can screw over the fans with that they better not try this again. But I guarantee you the next Taylor Swift concert or the next U2 concert or the next Beyonce concert, the biggest act. I guarantee you the next time that happens, they're, oh, no, not again. You can't regulate us. You can't break us up. We're not a monopoly. That's got, It's going to happen because executives at Ticketmaster, executives at these scalping tickets, Live Nation, the artists, they're making a freaking mint. And so that should just tell you why this whole system needs to be broken down and re, you know redone again because it's – it it just is. It's not designed to basically make this affordable. It's it's designed for the wealthiest of the wealthy, and that's just that. One other quick side note, if I could say, you there are we got them up there. Yeah, we got the plethora of live uh, of social media accounts here, which is just the burden of my freaking existence. Can I just say this? God, I wish I could just turn all this stuff off. But hey, I got enough followers. About, about eighty five hundred or so on on Facebook. You know, about, about the 30, 3,800 on Twitter, you know, the rest of them probably maybe a, maybe a thousand. So you can follow me on various social media sites. One of the things I've noticed about the Facebook page, which is at Matt McNeil show, Progressive Citizen X. OK, go look it up. You can follow me there. If I post about a concert, particularly before the concert in the comment section, my comment section gets overwhelmed. With people coming out there saying, gee, Willikers, I've just got a pair of tickets and I can't use them. I'm willing to give them up at face value. If anybody wants them, they can have them. Just get in touch with me. And it's one thing if it was just one person. There'll be like 12 of those in the comment section. By the way, blocking every one of them. I block them, and one of the things I do love about Facebook, you can block them, and then any other accounts that individual sets up, you can block all them too. I posted about the Ed Sheeran being at the Lego store yesterday, which would be the day after the concert at U.S. Bank Stadium, and in my comment section was, hey, I can't make the show tonight, but I'm willing to give my way my tickets at face value. If anyone wants them, just get in touch. It's all scams. It's all scams. There are people out there, and it'd be one thing to be able to say, oh, it's some guy in Albania or something like that. No, these are people just across the country who are just, just, this is how they trick you into giving you money, and they're going to rob you blind because you're stupid and I want the money. Don't do it. Don't do it. I would make the argument this. Unless you're going to a small venue, you know, uh, you know I, I would say anything the armory size or smaller. So the Fine Line, 7th Street, 1st Avenue, you're generally, I think, pretty safe with them. But anyone in X, the U.S. Bank Stadium, Target Center, Target Field, if you're dealing with them, if you can't get the tickets from the original selling individual, I think you've got – it's it's real risky, I think, if you're just trying to get tickets because I just think most of the – there's just too many people ripping you off, whether that's the legitimate people ripping you off or the people trying to just steal your money.
that it's kind of a sad commentary that you're getting like 12 comments like it, that because you, they wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't working. But it's like, really, you're going to try to get tickets from someone posting in a comment section on a post? But someone, if you're desperate enough to get the tickets. I noticed yeah. it when I posted with Pink. Pink go to me in concert, and all of a sudden, there was all these content, uh, the comments there. I did. I noticed it with t- Taylor Swift. I mean, I, I just and I can't, I can't use the tickets, and every one of them, they, they're getting better at their their scam. I mean, it looks like just a mom. You pull up their account, looks like a mom, like the one today. I mean, clearly that's a scam. The show was the day before. She didn't even do her basic research to say, okay, is this here? So, and my guess is they've got some sort of algorithm which says concert this town here automatically posted thing on there and that's what it does it scans through the system you didn't even do the basic research but if you pulled up her account before i blocked her she looked like just some working class mom from missouri i have tickets so what are you waiting to say you're working class in missouri what are you doing coming to a minneapolis for an ed sharon concert you know i just it's it it, it there's it, it becomes pretty obvious it looks very legit until you start thinking about it for a second or they're stupid enough to post i've got tickets available for the show that was last night it's like, really those sound like a great value <laughs> So I just want everyone out there because I want no culpability in this crap whatsoever. I want everyone out there to basically do not get tickets off my Facebook page. They're not – I even if I was selling them, I, would, I wouldn't put them on my Facebook page like that. I would probably let people know, you know, friends of mine saying you know, that I know they would like the band. I'd go to talk to them directly. I'm not going to ever put anything out there. So – if there is something on my page that says you got tickets to go see one of the biggest acts, you know, in in the country, that's not me. Blink one eighty two. How did Matt get all these? No, and and no, don't trust any of them. Nope. It's Matt's safety tip. <laughs> the Matt McNeil Show Facebook page is a bed of lies. Just remember that. <laughs> It's it's where the thieves and the scammers come. Thanks for following. And hit that like and subscribe button, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Hey, the other stuff is legit. Just I'm not selling any tickets, okay? Nor do I endorse anyone doing it. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. I think it's it is a it's a, a wash. Would I trust myself? <laughs> you don't know where those hands have been. It is the Matt McNeil Show. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. By the way, coming up here in a little bit. Too much sea for their decks. Shipwrecks of Minnesota's North Shore and Isle Royal. Michael Schumacher is going to join us to talk about his latest book. Very entertaining. I do. Do you like the stories of the shipwrecks and stuff like this? Not just on the Great Lakes, but around the, you know, th- those are kind of interesting stories, I think. I think they're interesting stories. And uh, yeah, I would definitely check it out. I wish they'd make a movie about like the Edmund Fitzgerald. Do you think someone would do that? Well, I, it screams Clooney, man. It yeah. screams, well, it's, you know, he already did, but he already did Perfect Storm. So, you know, it's Christian Bale, maybe. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will say about Lake Superior, Lake Superior scares me, man. I remember there was a picture I posted. This is probably seven or eight years ago. Showed a cliff that was 120 feet high, 
and the waves were crashing right about 20 feet from the top. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me, man. That's a lake. That is a lake. And I bet it's not warm water. <laughs> no. Oh, there's one. There's one here. That's just you can't believe how tragic it is. We'll talk about that that shipwreck as well as some of the other stuff in the book. Highly recommend. That's coming up here in the four o'clock hour. So I want to. Uh, there was a thread that I saw, and I've got to read this just because this is just so spot on. It's Dr. Lisa Corrigan, um, who it, it, she seems to be from Arkansas, but it looks like. She might be doing some stuff with the University of Minnesota Press and stuff like that. I don't know if she's at, teaches at the University of Minnesota or University of Mississippi, rather. I said Mississippi, University of Mississippi Press. Not sure what her situation is there, but needless to say, she seems to be very intelligent because this is a brutal breakdown of the reality of the Republican Party today. Wedge issues like book bans appear when fascists have no plan to govern. And just want to direct white rage at public institutions like schools to erode support for the public good. I read that. I'm like, holy God, is that succinct and absolutely spot on? Wedge issues like book bans appear when fascists have no plan to govern and just want to direct white rage at public institutions like schools and erode to erode support for the public good. I was like, okay, you, 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 that's called a hook. You got me. You're reeling me in at this point. I want to go through this because this is just, like I said, this is as, as far as threads go with insight into the modern Republican mentality. You can't beat this. And by the way, there's stuff – you're not going to believe what the Republican Party – what happened with the Republican Party this weekend. You're not going to believe what happened with this weekend. I'll get to that here. Anyway, back to Dr. Lisa Corrigan. Predictably, the general focus that white rage onto Jewish or black people is a way to sharpening whatever aspect of whiteness feels to be in crisis, generally as a result of sustained public critique of white supremacy and colonialism. We are coming to grips here with the fact that not only we're, we're I guess I don't have a her analysis is spot on because there has been this real big pushback. Since we started probably about 10 years ago talking about how the, the, the plight of the African – there was no positivity in slavery. There wasn't. It was a horrible, god-awful stain on our history. That The way that the Native Americans were treated was just atrocious by the white European settlers. That Columbus – as we, we went and revisit Columbus and that absolute jackass of a human being and all the stuff that he did. That this, this it, it, it once again, I think it's as as we talk about the real true legacy of slavery and the Native American treatments and in Columbus and white European expansion into the North American and South American continent, that I, I think that this is it not really a surprise that she's exactly right. When you put that in perspective, this is why Trump and DeSantis and these guys are pushing back as hard as they are is because, no, Christopher Columbus was the greatest person ever. You know, that's kind of because they're they're trying to appeal to white supremacists and stuff because, hey, they're attacking our legacy, that kind of mentality. She continues, book bans always fail, and generally the books sell gazillions more copies, bringing more attention to the object of the white tears. But more than that, book bans and other local cultural wars show us where fascists think they have the power to define the limits of the public good. Book bans make white people feel in control so they can consolidate a narrative among their own their in-group. 
But the effect of that is also raising awareness outside of that in-group so that the people mobilize to defend institutions of free speech like schools and libraries. Absolutely spot on. Like I said, this whole this whole thread is insanely concise and on point. Republicans are seeing their perceived empire start to crumble. And it, and it crumbled because they got too greedy. Donald Trump got too greedy. He wanted another term in office. He lost fair and square. The public rejected him. And then they tried to take over, and it failed. And this is the, the, the falling down. And they're still trying to push this. Trust us this time. Guarantee we won't try to overthrow the government. And it remains to be seen whether or not people will take him seriously or not. But the reality is, is this is, you know, when they overturn Roe v. Wade, they accomplish something that they said they're going to. And the consequences of them doing so are making them look like they're going to have no chance in a lot of other states to especially win nationwide elections. So they're, they're, this is – what are they doing? They're going out – they're trying to feel like they're in control by going after drag queens, going after books, going after the LGBTQIA, seeing we're in charge when they really are offering nothing in regards to actual leadership and legislative proposals. Another way of thinking about it, book bans emerge when white people feel so out of control and weak that they must produce control over objects that, that center critiques of power. Spot on. Obviously, you should buy and read the banned books and leave them in free little libraries with the community members to support teachers who support them. Borrow them from lending institutions to justify their purchase. Request their purchase from your local library. So there you go. But understand that book bans work as prohibitions, which is the only way that fascists see power as something to be centralized and hoarded, not something to be debated and shared. Sweet Jesus, is that the Republican Party, something that feels power should be centralized and hoarded, not something debated and shared? Sweet Jesus, the Republican Party are fascists now when you look at how they are. There was one guy on the, the, the weekend shows who said – he goes, if Hunter Biden broke the law, then he should face punishment for the crimes that he did. And he goes, that's the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Find me one person on the Republican side who says Donald Trump should go to jail. Donald Trump tried to overthrow the government of the United States. They, they have embraced this. They might not be actual fascists. But they've, they've embraced the fascist playbook that they basically have to stay in power no matter what. Here's where it gets like, holy gosh, is this this doctor on on it? Absolutely. Fascism, fascism works best in an economy of scarcity because people feel so precarious, economic, social, political, so they don't want to produce abundance of support of public goods. Produce abundant support for public goods. So basically what she's saying is this. You create a horrible economy, and it's far easier to convince people that true leadership is banning a Dr. Seuss book. That see, they're they're like this because they're just so desperate to feel like they're in charge of something. This is one of the reasons why, in conjunction with what I've been talking about for the last three or four months. That Republicans, whenever there's positive news about Minnesota or Minneapolis-St. Paul, their first thing is to scream, no, it's not, because they can't risk people feeling like 
things are getting better. They they have literally become the point where you, you could get gasoline down to, say, $3 a gallon under Joe Biden. And they say, gosh, gas prices are out of control. But gas prices could be four fifty under Donald Trump. And they say, isn't he doing a good job keeping gas prices under control? That is who they are. It doesn't matter the reality anymore. They just got to push a freaking narrative. And it's absolutely spot on. Invest your time in political energy into public schools, libraries, museums, historical societies, parks, etc. Any scarcity that happens in the U.S. is intentional and, and politically calculated. It helps keep, uh, justify austerity and brutality. Fascists are counting on you to stay quiet about the erosion and privatization of the public goods like schools and hospitals. So don't do that. Book bans are about the convergence of race panic and sex panic. That nexus is what's mobilized white rage since Brown versus the Board of Education – and surprisingly, since the white America's r- r- racial guilt shame get played out in the realm of public education. The minute they started teaching, guess what? Slavery was really bad. And there, there was a lack of equal rights still to that day when board versus the, the, uh, the uh, board of education. They basically, you know, that's they've been pushing back. And part of it, too, if I can also add on here, is the, the kids of the people in those in those photos where they're pouring ketchup and mustard on African-Americans who dare to sit at the white person counter at a diner. They're trying to redeem. Well, you just don't understand. Grandpappy wasn't trying to be racist. He was just, he wanted a seat. He, was, he, he, he had bad aim and was trying to give ketchup to the hot dog. You know, that's kind of one of the things that they're trying to do. The white tears of the over the 1619 project and uh, uh, reveal that white supremacists re- uh, perceive themselves in crisis over social control, historical meaning, marketing. The only way to that crisis is the destruction of the non-white knowledge bases, public education, and publishing. When white people, hetero men especially, feel like they're in crisis, they see no place for their white supremacy in the present or future, so they resort to nostalgia to reproduce older forms of white identity history. Whatever happened to Mayberry? Whatever happened to Mayberry? That isn't, that's exactly what that is. The other side of it? is terrorism to regain control. And have, how many times have you seen, just in the last week alone, Republicans actually encouraging violence if things don't go their way? Absolutely. This is because knowledge can be never can never be taken away. So fascists can prevent knowledge of fascism, racism, colonialism from being shared or distorted via Fox News and conservative media ecology. They can control politics. This is why public education will also be a, be central to freedom. Also, public education and libraries were feminized because of the way the workforce managed sex and gender in the 1960s. So if you care about fascism in the U.S. and you are a, a dude invested in freedom, you need to work alongside librarians and teachers to safeguard public institutions. Book bans are a failure every single time. People will continue to read, beloved, but they demonstrate the limited political repertoire of fascism, which means they can be, show us how predictable fascism is and how fascism can be thwarted. That is, a book ban is not about the ban itself. It's about the process of activating, activating the fascist in-group to coup at the school board meetings and reassert control over education and over white fascists who might be flirting with liberal thinking, reading, and speaking. Book bans also teach people to snitch on one another to destroy solidarity and community trust. Undeniably, snitching undermines public trust in the public institutions and creates an atmosphere of fear, which creates an illusion of scarcity through profiteering and probation. 
flood, tip lines, nonsense, basically fight back. It's absolutely spot on. The entire thread is amazing. This modern Republican Party has embraced fascism point, and this is where they're at. They don't have any ideas. They're not about transportation or public education or health and human services or the environment. So they basically, book bads, hate drag queens, because they're trying to get in control. They try to convince you, if, even if your life is getting better, that your life is horrible, so you're more susceptible to their fascist positions. And basically, it's, it's, it's out there to stop you from from basically reading, thinking, and and having a mind of your own. So they basically sit there and they try to, whatever happened to Mayberry? And when that's not hooking anymore, because people say, well, you know, it was Mayberry, it was rural North Carolina. Trust me, there's tons of racism there. <laughs> they did, that might that wasn't that wasn't in the show, but it was, it was really racist in rural South North Carolina. Let me just tell you right now. So then it comes, you'd better follow us or else. Spot on. And by the way, I got a lot more to unpack on this because of things I experienced this weekend and things that the Republican Party experienced this weekend and the story from the Star Tribune about the, trying to get control of these school boards. We'll talk about that when we do return. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. So I, I see this tweet from uh, Brian Evans, who is the uh, communications director for the DFL. And this is a tweet from two hours ago. And apparently this weekend... um. It, 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 this is this this it sounds insane. This weekend, uh, David Hahn almost was 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 Chair David Hahn was kicked off the the head of the GOP. Um, the, the, I mean, and like I said, I'm getting this from him, and I and I haven't. I did, did you know that there was a was there supposed to be a GOP meeting this weekend? Do you know about that? Yeah, to me, this kind of seems out of left field. That that's a big deal that they're. Close to removing their chair. Apparently, and I'm going to read directly from the, the the Brian Evans tweet. Minnesota GOP David Hahn just barely fended off an effort to oust him over the weekend. Hahn also defeated a motion that he forgo his salary until the Minnesota GOP pays the Mayo Civic Center. The margin there was 10 votes. There is a link here, but it doesn't – I've pushed on it a few times, and it doesn't seem like the link is working in any capacity, at least it's not pulling up the story that you, you would think it would be. Um, so, yeah, um, I'm going to read. He has a, a post here and he highlighted this. The motion to replace Han was brought by former state representative Eric Mortensen. Oh, God, that guy. When he was ruled out of order by the presiding chair, the convention voted on whether or not to consider his motion. On a procedural vote like this, there must be over 50 percent voting to overturn the out of order ruling on the presiding chair. In a surprising turn, an incredible 125 delegates, 40% of the body, voted to move forward with a motion to replace Han. While this fell short of the half needed to proceed, it does speak volumes about dissatisfaction with the Republican Party chair. Okay. 
the Republican Party is in real big freaking trouble in this state. I mean, it is in really big trouble. Although they, they won't believe it. Because let me make sure we understand something about far-right Republicans. Far-right Republicans look at a picture of a county with 5,000 people in it and then look at a picture of the county of Hennepin County with a few million people in it. And they'll say that the one county with, with 5,000 people in it is red and the one is blue. It's like, they're equal. Say, same thing. <laughs> gotcha, dems. <laughs> they're idiots. <laughs> because when you surround yourself with only things that validate your opinion, you become dumber and dumber and dumber. I know far-right Republicans who honestly think the majority of the state agree with them. And you look at them and say, did you just see the last election where the Republicans got their trousers handed to them? And yeah, that's that, that was an anomaly. There's voter fraud. It was, every vote would have gone for the Republicans, but the Democrats would. And, and it's always like there's eight Democrats that are stopping everything. If we only stopped those eight people, only stopped all of them, everybody here would be willing to give their tax dollars to billionaires and billionaires. And that would be a utopia. <coughs> they, don't even, they don't even hear themselves. If you want to know the truth, they don't even hear themselves anymore. But because that that's the – you convince yourself, well, all I see is friends who agree with me, so we all are there. I was – Paul Anderson ran for president of the United States in in 1980. I think it was Paul Anderson was his name, if I remember correctly. He, he didn't do well. Um, he lost. <laughs> but – out in Rhode Island where I lived at the time, and at this time I was, what, 11 or 12 years old, so I was starting to kind of get things. At, at that time, that was it was Paul Anderson, by the way. You pulling that, the 1980 campaign of Paul Anderson? Yeah, I'm looking that up, yeah, to see what he got. Yeah, he didn't get much. Rhode Island, did he, did he take Rhode Island? Did he actually win the state of Rhode Island in 1980? Uh, I don't think he won, but I'm still looking at the data. Okay. You, yeah, you track it doesn't it. look like he won, though. I was out in Rhode Island, and it was funny because my older siblings, who were all voting age at that point, were all like, I can't believe he, that he lost. I can't believe he lost. Everyone I knew was going to vote for him. Now, mind you, this is a small corner of the smallest state in the nation, Rhode Island. And there was just this kind of ambivalence over, uh, you guys understand, this is a big country, right? It's it goes further than Cranston, okay. And by the way, if you're from Rhode Island, you're just yeah, you're loving that, right? There you go, yeah, it's it's bigger it's, it's bigger than Narragansett, all right. It's you know you got to go further than Block Island. There's all your Providence. There's all your Rhode Island references for you. Wickford. Anyway, it it you the Republicans are like that. They've convinced themselves. That we're not on the outside, they're on the outside. And this is I – mean, isn't this what they – why they think voter fraud is so legit? It's because they, they honestly think that, well, no, every – all – 100% of all people vote with us. So henceforth, the only way we're losing is it's got to be voter fraud. I mean it's that kind of delusional thinking. This is not an outlier within the Republican Party. This is now a large portion of the Republican Party. 
when I look at Eric Mortensen, I remember Morty. Uh, I when I look at Eric Mortensen and I look at this, this is that far right crew that 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 ZZ Flop, the Mary Francis, the Grunhagens, the Drzinskis, the Luceros, the Walter Hudsons, and all that crew that are out there basically who surround themselves with people who who are you know kind of kind of weasel you know weaselly internet trolls that basically edge on other weaselly internet trolls and they have become this party that you know if we only just jammed everything down their throat we would win it would look like integrity because everyone agrees with us and here is the republican party today who realizes and because i i more uh, uh, walt hudson you know the representative from St. Michael Alberville. Uh, you know he apparently was on his. You know, you know, abortion is horrible. Abortion is legal. And funny when I asked him, I said, "Are you saying right now that the Republican, the GOP, the Republican uh, platform for 2024 is illegal abortions in the state of Minnesota? That you're going to get rid of all the laws? That that's your policy? That's your platform? And of course they're running away from it because they know they can't win with that." But it, 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 it's only when you basically demand, okay, are you on the record? Because I'm going to say this, that far right of the party, that's their platform right now. And when you look at what happened this weekend with Han almost getting voted out, you can kind of hypothesize that this is, this is really what they want to do. Because let's face it, the moderate Republicans, they're weakless, spineless jellyfish that don't have any integrity whatsoever. They're so terrified of upsetting the far-right stooges within their own party that they don't have any integrity. They don't have any moral fiber. So whatever the far-right brings into the campaign when they're out there talking about, we're going to get rid of abortion, we're going to make being gay illegal, we're going to basically prosecute anyone that has a drag queen show, that is going to be the policy of the Republican Party. And this little experiment they tried to pull this weekend that it only highlights the fact that this is indeed where they're going and if they don't win again well then maybe that's we'll go back to that twitter thread i just brought up maybe then all of a sudden we'll start threatening people we got the guns we'll go out there and show them who's really in charge good luck with that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it will be a hoot watching the uh, 10th Mountain Division absolutely annihilate you guys. No, bring your pickup truck. Oh, it'll be a make for an easy target. Oh, it'll be, it'll be hilarious watching your little insurrection get killed. Because, I mean, let's be honest here. Most of the Republicans that are talking about this stuff that try to fan the flames of they'd better or else, they're not willing to go out there and sacrifice themselves. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Republican, the, the Trump administration failed as badly as they did with this attempt to overthrow the government. Is because at the end of the day, the the, the Republicans like Getz and Matt Gates and and Boebert and stuff like that and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who might have actually kind of gone along with it, they're not about to go out there and use their political, uh, you know, their uh, um, bank account to basically push for this. They want other people to be there and then at the very last second run up to the top of the hill and plant the flag and say, we did it. We won. That's us. Bing. We're the winners. And so that's what these guys are like doing. They're they're out there right now pushing this idea because it's really easy to sacrifice other people's kids for your own causes. So... I, 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 this is a sign. This is where the Republican Party is at. They're not any moderate. 
they're this far-right extreme group that is basically even just they, – they can't even stand their own leadership right now. And one side of this party is going to drag this party to the extreme far right. And there is nothing, there is nothing in that Republican Party. All they can do, all they can do is sit there and say, you know, we're really moderates in the campaign. But ask them, it's like, are you going to stand up to the Mary Franzens, the Glenn Grunhagens? Because that's the real question right now. If you claim to be moderate, it's not just standing up against the Democrats. It's standing up against these far-right loon balls within your own party. And you want to know the truth is? I don't think a lot of them want to because they already know that they cannot upset them. So I want to make sure everyone understands right now the Republican Party platform in 2024 in Minnesota is women don't have the right to choose their own health care. LGBTQ population will be discriminated against. Transgender people will be will be chucked in prison if they get their way. And they'll they'll criminally prosecute anyone that puts on a drag show. Because they have to adopt the fascist stance because no one's buying their product anymore. 952-946-6205. See how this all comes together? I'll even loop it in a little bit more when I come back from the break. 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. So let's tie this all back together here. Star Tribune story today about the amount of money being spent on these school boards. So the Republicans, okay, I I found it to be very interesting, the specific school boards that they're targeting, where this money is being spent. Because it's clearly these are the school boards where the far right parts of this country still in the metro area still think that they can, hey, I'm really a moderate, like down in Hastings, remember? Down there, like, we're really moderates. And, and basically behind the scenes, they were a part of that Facebook group that was out there attacking the eight-year-old girl from the school district down there. And then, well, of course, when it got exposed, they're like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, they, the, Hastings is a great example of that. The far right still goes into Hastings because as the metro has grown, it still is a district where if they pretend to be moderates, they can sucker you on in. Uh, anyway, they, they talk about this. This is They start off with this uh, Aaron Hears McArdle, who is part of the Anoka Hennepin County School Board. And, of course, Anoka Hennepin is one that we've talked about a lot over the years. That's where they had uh, they, they had the far-right extremist got on that school board before and basically were, were ba- op- openly encouraging the Christian kids of the school to bully kids under the argument of free speech to death. And I think they ended up having dozens of – kids dead by suicide before they finally got sued and all of a sudden all the well we did our job and they all ran away because they they knew they had kind of been caught uh off-year school board elections are typically among the sleepier political affairs of minnesota but a surge of interest in the inner workings of the state's public schools made these once docile affairs more competitive the much of the school's focus on school board races experts insiders say is direct result of the pandemic 
There is certainly is a broader interested uh, Kurt Schneidenwind, an executive director of the Minnesota School Boards Association. I think as part of COVID, all of a sudden the people may not necessarily have been engaged before or interested there. All told, candidates vying for the seats on the Rosemont Apple Valley Egan School Board tripled their spending. The collective war chest in the South Washington County District more than quintupled. What about those three? Uh, now, Apple Valley, I think, is getting to be a bit of a reach. Rosemont, Apple Valley, Egan, that is becoming more blue. That is. I mean, it really is. As a matter of fact, it's not like it was 10 years ago where I think that it was a Republican-favored district. I think those are going to be Democratic districts. Uh, South Washington's a little bit more difficult. That's a little bit more on the the, the, the teeter-totter there. Uh, but Anoka Hennepin, I mean, there's a lot of really red areas there. What they're doing is, hey, gee willikers, I don't know where you get the impression. I'm a far-right extremist. I'm really a moderate willing to work with the other side of the aisle. <laughs> That's what they're doing. I, I, I bring this up because I want to remind people of what happened to me. I was in the Hopkins School District, and all of a sudden there came this group called United Dyna 273 who was trying to basically there – are, there are neighborhoods in Edina that are part of the Hopkins School District. They were trying to peel them away because there was a land developer who was building houses there, and he wanted to maximize his price. So he wanted those houses out of the Hopkins School District and into the Edina School District. So they put out this, we want to unite the entire Edina community. Funny story, they didn't really want to. The townhomes off Bren Londonary, the lower-income apartments off of Lincoln Fifth, and the entire northern neighborhoods, those were excluded. So as a group called United Edina, they didn't really want to unite Edina. One day, all of a sudden, there were three candidates for the Hopkins School Board who no one knew anything about. So when I contacted them and I tried to find out more information, I'm for homeowners' rights. Well, what about the air conditioning unit over at the school? Uh, I'm for homeowner rights. They were plant candidates, plant candidates in there to basically try to push the school district into basically peeling off that part of their tax base, which, by the way, they lost. The school district didn't do. They were all upset. You need to find out if you are in one of these school districts, you need to find out who your school board candidates are. Because one day, if you don't pay attention and you don't know who you're voting for, one day you could walk in and, well, we're pulling all the books out of the library and we're going to fire all the librarians. We're going to allow people to bully gay kids to death and and, and that, that, that it's going to be, we're going to basically you know, regulate everyone's sexuality. And if you don't want that to happen, you better find out who exactly is running for these school board candidates in every district that's got to race this upcoming election cycle. Well, hour two, that's coming up next. Hour two of the show here on your Monday. Hey, there it is. (laughs) Sorry, squeaky again. Matt and Brett here. Uh, Brett. When was the last time you printed out a photo? Not you know, okay, not not yourself, like on your computer printer at home if you have one or something like that. But it actually went to a place that still sells photos and you printed one out. Uh at least a decade, I would think for me. It's been a long time. I'm pretty much yeah, all digital when it comes to photos. A decade. Yeah. So okay, so I I have done an annual photo for the kids, for grandparents, godparents, stuff like that. Um, I'll do, I just did a graduation announcement for my, my high school graduation announcement for my oldest daughter. So I did that and I do holiday cards and stuff like that. 
But do you do anything like that, or is it all just? I mean, I mean, is is that? Do you consider that different than just printing out a photo? Um, I would consider that maybe a little bit different than printing out a photo. Like for my own side gig, I occasionally will print off forms. All you know, send to clients and such. But yeah, printing out photos, yeah. Generally, I'm all digital. Do you do photo? Do you do like uh, Christmas cards or anything like that? Do you, or is that all digital too? All digital. Wow, I'm an old man, dude. How <laughs> did this happen? I don't care. I mean, okay, because I I played Dungeons and Dragons in the '80s. That's why I'm old. I am. I'm of the. I've got a wizard that's got some dexterity. You know, <laughs> and I did, and I knew all the dice, and I knew what to do. I'm an old man. Stranger Things is more of just a oh, – I remember those guys. I remember that class. I went to school with those kids. Well, it's not just me or you. A lot of people must not be getting photos anymore because Shutterfly – I don't know if you saw this. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Shutterfly company has announced it's going to close their warehouse and shock me. I just saw that. When I drove down a week and a half ago down to uh, Lesur. And St. Uh, Peter, I, I, was, I went past there. They got that big facility down in Shakopee. It's going to close their warehouse in Shakopee with the loss of almost 250 jobs. The company confirmed the impending closure in a notice to the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development saying it will permanently shutter the facility at 5,005 Dean Lakes Parkway. The layoffs will start October 9th with the final layoffs and the closure of the warehouse happening on June 28, 2024. In a statement, they said Shutterfly announced it will be closing its manufacturing facility in Shakopee. On June 2024, this decision was carefully considered as part of a strategy to strengthen our overall business operations and consolidate production of the largest manufacturing hub locations. We fully recognize the impact on the decision will have on our dedicated employers, their families, and the community. It will be a difficult choice. It doesn't mean you still can't get Shutterfly, just it's their their closing facilities, which is a sign that they are not making nearly as much product as they were. And I don't – I mean it's they're, – they're, by the way, the Shutterfly's headquarters are San Jose, California. I'm um, – I don't – you know, I don't – when was the last time non-special event I just printed out photos? God, I mean you know, in the 90s, I was in the military. I was in Europe. That was all film. I, I remember my first digital camera. But what did you do with those? You had the chip inside them. You would go to a Target or a Walmart. You would plug your chip in and you would still order printed photos. You know, it, it's nowadays, it's it, nowadays Facebook is antiquated, but Facebook is still the, the place where most of like, I, I've got a private Facebook page and that's where most people will see the, 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 where I post the daily photos of the kids and stuff like this and stuff like this happened. You know, someone got a good grade or something like that. That's I post it all there. Used to be you'd print out a bunch of photos and every three or four months you'd send people photos. And just don't do that anymore. It's just such a lost thing, man. I remember, yeah, when I worked at Walgreens years ago, we had the one-hour photo center. I trained to work there for a little while. I imagine those are probably pretty much gone at this point. Well, no, they, they, have, they, they still, still have, have them. some, but yeah, like they're mostly self-service. Well, it's not – they, what they do is they have a machine that kind of just, you know, yeah. the order comes in and gets put into the machine. It just prints it out and some guy just, you know, puts the stuff in a, in a bag. If you want to get anything matte, that's all glossy, by the way. Those printers only put out glossy photos. If you want anything matte, they have to send it out and they get it sent to you, you know, specifically. But I gotta imagine it's just a different facility with a larger printer, and that they do that. It's it really is remarkable how things have changed. And the question is, is how much longer before we even? 
I mean, I think that there still is some of this where you have like invites for or graduation announcements or Christmas cards that still kind of go through that same thing. But I just, I mean, how much longer before you know all that stuff is you know just it's it's one or two specialty locations and that's it because everyone now is just doing things digitally. I don't know. I, I it's I I I'm realizing that it's hard when you see. I've lived in my house now for 22 years. I have seen a lot of the old original owners pass away or move away. And whenever they pass away, what ends up happening is that a few weeks later, there's a dumpster out in front and all that stuff that they had is, you know, the kids will keep one or two things, but a lot of stuff you have just gets chucked in there. And I have zero doubt that in the future that a lot of this stuff is just going to end up in the bottom of, 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 of a dumpster. And it's a shame because my my grandfather was big in film back in like the 1910s, 1920s. And he t- took a lot of photos and had photo books. And they, back then, I mean, there were these splendid displays. You know, they would, they would, they would write in, with calligraphy on where it was and the date it was and whose is. And that's, that's Joe and Mitch and, and Susie and, and, and Marge. And, you know, you'd put it in there and they'd have little corner things. They'd put in the photo book and the picture would slide into the corner things. They were just eloquent and just lovely, and they're gone because you you hand one of those to a kid today, like, what am I supposed to know about that? You turn the pages. It's like swipe left, only it's in, in real form. It's funny as you're describing those descriptions. It sounds like a, an early version of a well-written social media post where you're yeah writing who's on the floor or who is in the photo, what they were doing, and yeah you kind of tag them too. Not nearly as many photos of food back then. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> probably not many selfies either. Oh, there were some selfies. I mean, they 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 were kind of kind of at the beginning. I mean, I did that too. I mean, I gosh, I, I grew up in the age. There was a disc camera that had film that was a disc. I mean, it's so. I mean, if anyone has one, it's going to go up on Antique Roadshow, and I bet. If you, and if you have unopened film, I guarantee it's going to be worth something. But yeah, it's weird, but that's the change. Uh, I've told you before. I've told you once. Try. I told you twice. Do not try to steal something from a diner. Uh, police pursuit of a stolen Kia in the West Metro over the weekend ended with the vehicle flee, uh, fleeing vehicle crashing through a highway fence in Edina and its four young occupants taken to the hospital. Have you seen the video of this? Star Tribune's got it. I haven't seen the video. I've read about this, though, and I immediately thought, oh, yeah, Edina robber? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's going to go well. The Well, there was two vehicles involved. I'll get to this in a second. The, the, the accident that these kids got injured in, dude, you guys, <laughs> when they hit that tree and they stopped – and the, the officers get out and they've got guns drawn. You don't see anyone trying to run away. There's a reason for that. Those kids are hurt because of their own stupidity. Let's just be honest about it. The crash occurred shortly before and after 9 a.m. on Saturday near the entrance ramp on France Avenue onto eastbound Highway uh, 62. Uh, the pursuit began when the sheriff's deputies from Carver County asked Eden Prairie Police to assist with the pursuit of a Kia SUV, which was fleeing while accompanied by a Toyota Camry. Now, you've got to watch this film to see this. There is a cop there who throws out one of those stop sticks. We need to get him on the twins. Dude, man, that was a hell of a toss. Bravo. That is some police action there. He's He's got to be about 40 feet from the car, 
just chucks it out in front of the this, – this is the car that got away, I think, the Toyota Camry. But he tags all their tires. You know, he gets them all because he threw it out there like a boss, man. Think about him in the eighth inning tagging the corners of that plate. Nicely done, officer. I look forward to you joining the bullpen. <laughs> we need you. They need something. They could use a new uh, – some bullpen arms. There's the some... rotation. The bullpen needs him. Though. Yeah, yeah, bring get, him in. Get him in there. Yeah. You got to see the toss. It's a brutal, nicely done. They eventually the 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 other kids they just they went right into a tree. Ugh, that had to hurt. That had to, that was a bit of a stinger. Anyway, they're all they've all been arrested. Four Julianov kids were taken into custody and transported to Hennepin uh, Healthcare for evaluation. There's no further word. On Monday, they said that two of those arrested were 16-year-olds. One was 17, one was 15. The county attorney's office has yet to disclose when any of them has been charged. You know, uh, once again, DoorDash and, and, and Netflix is not a good punishment here. Uh, they're, they're lucky, considering you watch that chase, they're lucky not other people were killed. And so you got to have some level of punishment here as a deterrent and find out who is in the other car and get them arrested too. The Camry was later determined, determined by police to also be stolen, continue to flee east without being caught, she said. Uh, but I'm going to presume that they're – we we can figure out – we've got four people who know who was in the other car, and they're all in separate hospital beds right now. They have to be. And maybe you just kind of do the good cop, bad cop thing, you know. Hey, he's over talking to Squealy over there right now. Now – if you wanted to give us a statement, maybe we can get you the deal before Squealy finishes up squawking, and we can go from there. No? All right. Good luck with all that. I will say this. I do feel sorry to a point for the families because I don't think mom and dad thought their kids were going to end up this screwed up, whoever these kids are. And they're the ones that are going to have to – I mean, how much in, how much in medical bills do they just have to load? I mean, I got hit by a drunk driver. We had good insurance. It was tens of thousands of extra dollars on the medical side alone. What if they don't even have insurance, health insurance? I mean, you've just basically cursed your entire family, you idiots. Well, obviously, they're at fault too, so they're paying for the whole thing. Even if they had health insurance, would the health insurance cover it? Would they say, well, you know, you guys jeopardize yourself. You know, we're not going to cover this. You guys were you know, eluding police officers in the act of a crime. That We're not culpable for paying that. I don't know what the law is in Minnesota, but you know, I hope these idiots realize they've basically just ruined their parents' existence too. Freaking morons. 952-946-6205. All right. I got I got uh, two things I want to talk about here before I get to. I got an interview coming up here once again. Uh, too much sea for their deck. Shipwrecks of Minnesota's North Shore and Isle Royal. Uh, Michael Schumacher is going to join us to talk about this book from the University of Minnesota Press coming up here in about 20 minutes or so. Uh, two things. In case you missed it, Representative Dean Phillips, a few of the congressional Democrats openly calling for 2024 challengers to President Joe Biden. It is because Phillips himself wants a shot at Oval Office. He says now not likely. At least not this election, unless Biden's health or polling numbers get dangerously worse. Sources told Political in late July. I think that that is – remember, he was talking to, to bankrollers. And I think they realized that Dean Phillips was just not going to, 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 to get the, the, the traction this time around by challenging Biden. So now all of a sudden his, his – it's no longer – there's an exploratory committee. It's now – it's like, hey, I'm just bringing up the option. <laughs> 
I'm a representative, and I'm representing what I believe in the majority of the country that wants to turn the page, Phillips says, who's his third term representing Minnesota's third congressional district. Uh, Some Democratic lawmakers and strategists have wrung their hands over Biden's age, health, in favor of the polls leading up to the 2024 election. Well, maybe you should basically be praising him. And tired of meanness and the fear-mongering at Donald Trump, I would like to see Joe Biden, a wonderful and remarkable man, pass the torch and cement his extraordinary legacy, Phillips said on Sunday. Okay, stop. Don't talk about how great he is, and then you want to replace him. Because if he's great, then why do you want him replaced? All right? And that's just the end of the story. I'm tired of you guys buying freaking Republican narratives. Well, you know... You know, we, it, we, we, it, we, we, in 2016, how many freaking Democrats sat there and said, well, you know, before the election, we should not have put Hillary Clinton in there. We should have gone Bernie. Oh, we should have done this. And all of a sudden, she, you know, she doesn't win. And it's like, see, it was bad. Well, you didn't help. You, did, you weren't exactly helping when you're sitting there talking about, oh, God, it's a horrible. He, she'll be just as bad as Trump. Freaking idiots. What are you talking about? Um, Phillips on Sunday, I believe he's what's best of the country. And by the way, this is not how everybody thinks, but I believe the majority wants to move on. Well, I think you want to move on. Um, while several names of younger, fresher potential candidates have been tossed about, just two Democrats have formally entered the race to primary Biden. One is not really a Democrat. That's clear. And that's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And Marianne Williamson, who is, you know, Queen Moonbeam. <laughs> It's back for another go. Great. Here he comes again. As a Democrat, I adore Joe Biden. He saved the country. He can cement his legacy. Um, Phillips said, my real call to action right now is not about me. It's call to action to ask the president to pass the torch. So this is, I think, what we're looking at here is he, he must have seen the numbers don't show that for him, at least, there's the traction. The call to action is to ask the president to pass the torch. There's an extraordinary bench of people ready to go. Uh, Phillips says he hopes the moderate government, hopefully from the heartland, would throw their hat into the ring and pick up voters where Biden is currently lacking them. He tossed out names like Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Illinois Governor uh, uh, Pritzker, uh, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, and Minnesota Governor Tim Walls. I will say this about Walls. Now, once again, I've said this. I don't think considering the moderate territory anymore in this country is 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 a labyrinth because the Republican Party is so far to the extreme right. What used to be moderate, what 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 we consider moderate today, especially when I hear guys like Dean Phillips, was really borderline mid-center Republicans ten years ago. That that's how far the party is. When he talks about moderates, you know, it's like, we need to give another tax break to a millionaire. The first thing I said is, really? We've been giving tax breaks to millionaires for years, dude, and it's not helped the economy. I would much rather see Tim Walls run as opposed to a Dean Phillips. I still think I'm voting for Biden because, sweet Lord, has he had a successful first run. I can get it. You look at Dianne Feinstein. You look at Mitch McConnell. You look at these guys who are basically extremely old, and you ask yourself, how effective are they? But at the same time, Biden doesn't seem to necessarily – I've seen him taken down a few people lately. He doesn't seem to be losing a step. 
But if anyone is, Governor Walls, I, I thought it was interesting. He was down at the Iowa State Fair. Now, again, Iowa's been pulled as one of the starting states for the uh, for the um, Democratic selection process. But still, he sure looked like he was a campaigning down there. He sure looked like he was campaigning. And part of it, I think, is part of the problem is that for Iowa is they don't have any leaders. Right now, they don't have any Democratic leaders. So they have to pull in leaders from other states. But... Walls is a good candidate, dude. Remind of a thing. With that progressive agenda, Walls only vetoed one of those bills. He's a moderate, but he also remembers first before he says, I'm a moderate. Dean Phillips says, I'm a moderate first, and then he says he's a Democrat. Governor Walls says, I'm a Democrat first, and then I'm a moderate. There's a big difference. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Hey, am I lying? Not really. <laughs> I don't. Right? Would you agree with that assessment? Uh, oh, uh, well, what happened if he had to sign those bills? Moderate or Democrat? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. There you go. Uh, take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. By the way, 30 minutes is delicious. Stop out there. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. All right. I just want to clarify something because I was saying something before. There are moderate Democrats I like. Governor Walls is the epitome of that category. He is a moderate. He is not far left of the party. He's not really in a centrist. And if you're looking for ways to to look at it, I look at Democrats, and these are Democrats I admire in three different categories. You've got the guys on the left, Wellstonians. You know, the Paul Wellstone of the far left. And I appreciated Paul Wellstone and I loved a lot of his policies. You have the centrist Democrats, the Al Gore Democrats. And I was a big fan of Al Gore. I liked him. He was kind of just a traditional Democrat, not too far to the left, not too much to the middle. And then you have moderates. Barack Obama was a moderate. <laughs> he, he was a moderate. And but he still was at the end of the day, he was a Democrat first. Paul Wellstone was a Democrat, a DFLer first. That was who he was. And when I say I want a Democrat who's a Democrat first and then a moderate, not a moderate who then says I'll side with the Democrats. Because I've had enough of freaking Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. I've had enough of them because those are moderates who just happen to stumble into the Democratic camp every once in a while. And I've had Dean Phillips on the air before. Nice enough guy. He always has his populist, progressive topics when it's campaign season, especially when it's primary season. He'll always have something out there talking about, oh, I'm a big fan of this on the far left. Fine. The reality is, is I have that when, most of the time when Dean Phillips talks, his first words out of the mouth are, I'm a moderate. And it seems like and, – and that's the question I asked. And I asked this question, when you look at the litany of bills this progressive Democratic House and Senate handed out the DFL what they did in this state. If those bills went to the desk of the governor, that instead of Governor Walls being there, it was Governor Dean Phillips in there, how many of those bills would he have signed? And I can tell you right now, I don't think he would have signed a few of them. Walls didn't sign the the, the Uber Lyft bill. And at the end of the day, it seemed like 
and he was and there was clearly there was there was contention in regards to the male clinic stuff with the the nurses and stuff like that um that they they actually the the, the male clinic went right away to to walls and said this now walls never came out at least to my knowledge, I don't know if you do. You remember this, Brett? I don't remember Walls ever coming out and directing. He said yes, he was having meetings, but I don't think he ever told publicly that. Yeah, I don't want the nurses to have more say in staffing and stuff like that. Do you, I don't remember him doing that. I don't remember either. But they clearly went to him. But he still what he he held the unified Democratic front. He didn't run out in front of the cameras and start saying about I'm never signing this bill if it comes to my desk because I'm a moderate. You know, I mean, and that's and that's that's the difference. He didn't sign the Uber Lyft bill. I disagreed with that. He also supported line three. I really disagreed with that. All right. Let's just be fair. Let's just be honest. But Governor Walls put a signature on a lot of things. A lot of really progressive bills that were passed in a Senate with a one vote majority. He delivered. Governor Walls delivered for the DFL. Why? Because Governor Tim Walls is a DFLer first and then a moderate. And I do not know how many of those bills that Dean Phillips would have signed, but I do not think he would have signed the same amount. I don't mind you being a moderate that might, hey, even agree with a Republican. But don't act as if we all should be grateful in the DFL party because that guy who likes to compromise with Republicans is thinking he wants to lead the party. Be a Democrat. Be a DFLer first. First, show me that that's your priority. Show me that that's your agenda. Show me that that is your compass in life. And then tell me, are you a progressive like Wellstone? Are you a traditionalist like Al Gore? Or are you a moderate like Barack Obama? But don't stop. Just stop with this whole moderate, 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 moderate. I do not need Joe Manchin in the White House. I don't need a, a person who is quickly and willingly willing to Tom Bach the Democratic Party and chuck them under a bus because, hey, I'm going to work with the other side this time. Be a DFLer. Show me you're that first. Still, though, at the end of the day, Joe Biden deserves another term because that dude has kicked ass. He has been out freaking standing. 952-946-6205. We'll change direction when we do return. Uh, Michael Schumacher going to join us. Too much C for their decks. We'll talk his book when we do return. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show for your Monday. We welcome to the show Michael Schumacher. Too much sea for their deck shipwrecks of Minnesota's North Shore and Isle Royal. Michael Schumacher has written five previous books on Great Lakes shipwrecks. Uh, Mighty Fitz, November's Fury, Torn in Two, The Trial of Edmund Fitzgerald, all from Minnesota University of Minnesota Press, and Wreck of the Carl D. He has written narratives on 25 documentaries on Great Lakes shipwrecks and lighthouses. He lives in Wisconsin, and he's kind enough to join us today. Hi, Michael. How are you? 
I'm fine. How about yourself? I'm doing well. First of all, I, I always just enjoy talking to people who find their niche in life, dude. You, the, clearly, your interest in this has got to be just a the fact that this is your career that you have built a, a, a reputation about this and a and a, and a career around this. It, it's it clearly is something that you love as far as history and and following shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. When I was a little boy growing up in Milwaukee, I used to beg my father to take me to Lake Michigan. He remembered that to his dying day, how I always wanted to go to the lake. And there's been something about not just that body of water, but all bodies of water of the, of the Great Lakes that I found almost mystifying over the years. So doing these books has is, is really been kind of a treat in that respect. It, it isn't a treat to write about horrible shipwrecks, but um, the lakes are a, a very special place to me. Mm-hmm. What was your first shipwreck you actually saw in person? Actually saw in person? Or just or, 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 or you learned about, you had a, okay. a, connection, a connection with? That's a, that's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure I can answer it. Uh, <laughs> There were certain ones that were really well-known, like where I live now, which is in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is right on the border of Illinois, a a very well-known wreck, the uh, SS Wisconsin, went down. And it's still down there, and it's, it's fairly shallow, and people have visited it. It's really funny. I dove when I was younger, but I haven't been down to any shipwrecks. Um you know, personally. Mm-hmm. Now, there was also the Ralph Simmons, and that was a very big name in this town, uh, Simmons. They had the mattress company. That was his brother, I believe. And um, that was the Christmas tree ship. And, you know, I knew about those ships just because, or boats, I should call them boats, I should be correct. They're ships if they're on the ocean, they're boats if they're in the Great Lakes. But, um, you know, it was one of those things that I had heard a lot about. And, in fact, one of my prized possessions now, which probably tells you what a boat nerd I am, Mm -hmm. is I have, they gave me, after working on a documentary, they gave me a little piece of one of the Christmas trees that were on board that boat when it sank. Wow. And, yeah, it really meant something to me, you know. They had brought up a couple of, of trees and and had them restored or whatever. And restored isn't the word. Uh, they, they, they lacquered them or whatever so they wouldn't go bad. And they gave me a piece. That means, and I've got a, a few uh, taconite pellets from the Edmund Fitzgerald. Wow. And, you know, that means something to me. You know, it, it's just these little things that uh, probably wouldn't move most people but they do me well and and you're t- you're touching history i mean it, it's it's like when you, you know, and i'll put it in a comparison of another element like going to visit like the civil war battlefields and you're there yeah. and you're at like at gettysburg and a little round top you know it's one thing yeah. to read about it. it's another thing to be there and say oh they came through here and you're walking in the yeah. same spot they were at here you're holding you know that whether it's a, a piece of a Christmas tree or taconite pellets from the Edmund Fitzgerald, this is I mean, it's it, this is the history itself. I am holding yes. it in my hand. 
I, I know exactly what you meant because one time I was out east and I was driving near the Gettysburg battlefield, and I just I just had to see it. Yeah, and you know it, it's you know you know the history, but it doesn't look at all like that, of course. But it's still hallowed ground, yeah. and I really feel that about the the Great Lakes. These are hallowed waters. There are a lot of shipwrecks between the five lakes, and uh, so it, it's it's. I'm working on another one, incidentally, right now about uh, shipwrecks of Lake Michigan, and so you know, and, and that was funny because that just came to me. Uh, I was talking to my editor uh, about this book, this one you're talking about, uh, too much sea for for their decks. And um, he said, you've never written about, you know, Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, no, that's not true, because the wreck of the Carl D, that happened. The Carl Bradley sank up by Beaver Island in the northern Lake Michigan. And so I did. But he said, no, but you've never done what we call a roundup, where you do a whole bunch of, of boats. And I said, no. He said, well, what do you think? So we started discussing it, and that's how it happened. Yeah. But that's how these things go, you know. It's really weird in the respect that you don't plan on it. It it kind of presents itself. There's an old saying that some of these sailors have about a, a, a boat that's been missing, you know, that that's, hasn't been located, a wreck, lets you know when it's time. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I find that kind of interesting. Uh, but they really, uh, sailors are a pretty superstitious lot anyway. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, there is some sort of truth to that, though, where these boats are being discovered all these years later. Now, obviously, they couldn't be uh, discovered back in the day before the Aqualong. You know, these, some of these boats that I've written about went down in the 1800s. You know, so, you know, that helped. But there, I was just talking to a shipwreck hunter the other day, and and these people really, really are into it, and they're looking for the Steinbrenner, which I wrote about in this book, and the Steinbrenner has been missing since 1953, and the, the captain survived the wreck. He told them where it was. Well, it wasn't there, mm -hmm. and so. People find themselves looking for these wrecks because it is, like you said, it's a big part of our history. You know, these giant boats that are down there. And uh, I just find the stories interesting. Uh, the Steinbrenner, by the way, is one of the boats you feature on the Minnesota side. And by the way, my uh, cousin is a, a sailor on one of the Merchant Marines out in the, the lakes there. Yeah, they are They are uh -huh. an interesting crew. <laughs> I will say that very much. Well, you know, it, it takes – I don't know how I would – It's a calling. About what work was all about because I worked on – oh, Your phone's kind of cutting out there a little bit there. Uh, Mike, oh, oh, really? oh yeah, yeah, your phone cut out there a little bit. Sorry about that, Michael. Oh, you, were, you were saying about oh. you were talking about the people that are the sailors there. Yeah, yeah I, I worked on one of those boats, you know, or on these boats, and you know, unloading them and loading them, 
And I learned what work was all about at a very ripe young age. Mm -hmm. Boy, I'll tell you what, those guys earn their money. Yeah, they do. And, you know, it, it, and that's one of the things that I find very appealing about writing these books is that you're talking about your basic blue-collar working step, a person that works hard and goes out on the lakes, sometimes doesn't see land or goes a whole day or so without seeing land. And they're just working, and, and all of a sudden, they're up against some force that's bigger than they are that they're not prepared for. And I find that very, very interesting. Your book is broken down into three different parts uh, as you right. focus on this. You've, the, it's all Lake Superior. It's the, the wrecks on the Minnesota side, the wrecks around Isle Royal, which has always been kind of a uh, – that's a tough way to go. And then the, the killer yeah. storms. Um, you know, the, the focus on these – I mean, it's interesting. It, there is a different – from my experience, and, and I've not done a lot of reading, even by, a farm, uh, by far an authority on this, but it feels like the boats up on, on Superior, which more is more industrial – um, you know, in Michigan, you got yeah. boats that were, you know, there was population. There's population centers here mm-hmm. and, and stuff like this. And even though the Superior has Duluth, Sault Ste. Marie, Thunder Bay on it, right. uh, there, there's, it still is, it's, it's much more of a work, you know, th- those were working, hard working boats on that lake yes. that got taken down. You know, what drew you on this book? Once again, the book, Too Much Sea for Their Decks. Uh, you know, what drew you to those two areas specifically? You know, what really struck me two things. First of all, have you ever been to the Isle Royal? Uh, no, I want to get up there for sure. It's really an amazing place. And so I knew from my, my own past working on these documentaries what was up there. And there were some extremely interesting wrecks up there right around the island. Uh, because the water, the, 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 it, it, it goes from very deep to very shallow because of the lake bottom is very uneven. And so these boats would would ground on, you know, some of this. And, and then the other thing that I really found attractive about this book was Duluth. Duluth, people don't realize that at one point, Duluth was second only to New York for the number of, you know, boats that it took in. It was extremely busy. And, and you know, a lot of hard work went into creating that harbor and then further up north the split rock lighthouse which i write about in the book about how that got made and that wasn't easy to do uh so these stories uh, that's what always gets me the stories who are the people that were dealing with this how do i find out about how some of these things actually worked and mm-hmm. and that's what i'm doing now you know i'm, I'm, I'm finding myself getting a ton of old news clippings, and, and I even had telegrams. Uh, everything you could possibly imagine is somewhere. You just have to find it. Mm-hmm. And then you start piecing together the stories. And and there are so many stories in this book uh, that I always figured, maybe this is, I, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I always thought if it interests me, it's going to interest other people. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating topic because th- this is I – mean, you said it. These are huge vessels and you ship – and as much as I, – I, I talked about earlier with my producer, Brett. I, I, there's a photo from about six years ago of a cliff mm-hmm. on the north shore side of Minnesota 
on Lake Superior. Mm-hmm. The cliff is 120 feet fall, tall, and the waves are yeah. crashing into it about 20 feet below the top of it. And you're like, this it's is unreal. insanity. And we think to ourselves, we make these big boats and we this, and we can harness power and we can harness these things. And we are – nature always wins. And these boats it don't always have – will win. And it, and it doesn't have a chance out there because these lakes are as beautiful as they are. There is It's as deadly as any water body on the planet. Yes. Yeah. And it's really funny because, uh, well, two things. First of all, what you said is very true. Uh, when I've talked to, and I've talked to many captains of different boats and that have sailed both freshwater and saltwater. And they said the ocean, you get those big swells. The lakes, you get the chop. And they just beat you half to death. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it, it, it's, one of those weird things that uh, when you think of how many boats have gone over uh, the, the the water over the years, going back to the old birch bark days, uh, you know, birch bark canoes, when uh, the natives um, traded along the shoreline and how that developed into what it did. I find this history interesting, mm-hmm. and I find the people that were you know, involved, interesting, but I'm also put off by some of the, it is like arrogance. Like when I talk to these captains of these big thousand footers, they, without a, without a single difference, uh, they all told me, well, my ship won't sink. You know, we've got this, we've got this, we got, and, and it's all true. They do. They've got GPS, they've got radar, they've got everything you can possibly imagine. But if you're out on that lake, you're in trouble. Oh yeah, um, I, I, you got to. I, I could run through some of the wrecks here. I want people to get the book. Go read this. The wrecks, the stories you get here are fantastic. One thing on part three of your book, where you just talk about the killer storms. Just I'll, we'll we'll finish with this. What was in your mind the most dangerous storm that ever hit Lake Superior? And it hit Lake Superior. Yeah. Uh, of the, of the, you, you talk about three storms in that section. 1905, I would say the 1905 storm. The 1913 storm, it was literally a hurricane on the lakes, mm-hmm. but it hit Huron uh, harder. And uh, it did get some of Superior, but it wasn't as bad. 1905 was the storm that just took out, you know, all these boats, and it destroyed the Matafa. You know, which was uh, a very famous and well-known uh, for its durability boat. It just broke it apart, uh, and and that storm, that particular one, and that was what the storm that was responsible for the creation of the Split Rock Whiteout. Yeah. And speaking of going up a cliff, you know, they had to haul all that stuff up the cliff by crane. There we, were no roads leading to where they put up the lighthouse. Yeah, sixty-one Highway sixty one's a new addition up there. That was if you ever go to Split yeah. Rock Lighthouse, the building of that is is a magnificent feat in just in its own. And it is magnificent. I was I was honored to give the keynote address uh, at the opening of the Split Rock Lighthouse one spring, and I, I went up the lighthouse and I looked out over the water, and it's just breathtaking. You know, the oh, yeah. view you have from there, because it's way up on a cliff, and uh, it's it's just magnificent. 
but maybe that's just me. Maybe other people wouldn't feel that way. I, no, I it, have it's, a feeling more people would than I suspect. No, it is magnificent. I took the kids up there. We had the the luxury. My son was able to to, to honk the, the the foghorn up there one year, so it was it was a lot of oh, fun. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is as 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 photogenic places go. Split Rock Lighthouse is one of probably the top 20 on the planet, I think. It is just spectacular. I think you're right. It is yes. just beautiful. Um, I've too, been in a number of them, but that's by far the finest one I've ever been in. Too much sea for their decks. Shipwrecks of Minnesota's North Shore and Isle Royal. Michael Schumacher, you and I could talk. I'll tell you what. I'm going to have you back for the holidays because I do a holiday interview, Please which are a little Matt, bit longer. I'm happy to do it. This Anytime is, you want. This you is a fantastic book. Let me know. What's your time? Will you have the Michigan book out then? By the Lake Michigan book by then? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, no. I'm uh, actually I'm taking my time on this one. I'm I'm very old, you know, okay. <laughs> uh, and so I'm not. I used to write books where I tried to do three typed pages a day. That was what I insisted on. But now I, I'm I'm happy to get a page and a half. Happy to get half of that. But I'm also doing really, really on this book coming up some of the most in-depth research and the, the the one that you're we're talking about today yeah i did a lot i was very lucky to have somebody at the U- university of wisconsin superior uh, archivist had tons of material for me and just kept sending me more and more material and you know it's one of those those funny things i keep saying you can never have too much material well of course you can you can't put everything in the book or in a story or whatever uh, but I always like to be able to pick and choose, and this person was so wonderful about that. Uh, so I, that's that's what I'm doing. Well, and you can tell the quality of this book. This is a great read. If you have someone who's from Minnesota, uh, just loves the Great Lakes, that loves shipwrecks, this is the book. This is a great book to get. It's a fantastic read and a real easy one, and incredibly well written and researched. Michael Schumacher, Thank too you. much, too much uh, sea for their decks. Michael Schumacher, Michael, I'm definitely having you back on the holidays. Thank you very Me much. Too. I, I appreciate the time today. All righty. Yep. We'll you t- take care now. You too. You take care. We'll take a break. Come on back. Wrap up the show for your Monday. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. having him back on the holidays man dear lord he was just fun to talk to i love a guy that once you ask him a question after like first second second or third question six minutes you know five six minutes he's just going i'm you think i'm gonna talk no this is my show's better when other people talk <laughs> so, off you go oh uh good book by the way and i and I'll, i'm not going to talk about too much about this because I do, I'm gonna. This is gonna be the book we're gonna base our conversation on on the holidays when I have him back. But he runs through a bunch of the, the the wrecks that are out there, and one or two are just unbelievable. I mean, the one I, I was gonna say, the America, which is out off Isle Royal, I know that one um, because that's actually that sank in relatively. Sh- that that like I think that's the most shallow wreck. And that, that that's because a lot of people I know who dive on Lake Superior have di- gone out there and, and dove on that that wreck because it's it is really right there at the top of the water. They got a buoy on the thing, so you don't hit it. So it's just to give you how how shallow that is, it's right there. So that's that's one of the reasons why I knew that one. I'm not going to talk about the other ones. I will say the Armistice Day Blizzard. Uh, that's also another storm he talks about in this book. 
I still remember my, my, my grandparents were out on the lake, not on the Lake Superior, but they were out on a lake and that blizzard came in and they basically made it for sure. They, they headed for shore. They could see it coming across the lake, headed for shore, flipped the, the boat over on top of them. And I think he might've scrambled out and gotten some firewood, just something he could burn so they could keep warm. But that's how they, they rode that storm out. That storm killed a lot of people, not just on the, on the lakes, but in other places too. So. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Split Rock Lighthouse. He's right. You have you you've been to Split Rock? I have not. No. Okay, I'll take you up there and I'll let you. Blow, I'll, I'll ask if we can blow the foghorn. Okay. Only if that happens. Yes. <laughs> if you ask, I bet you they'd let you. I bet you they let you. Um. That is possibly. I, I, I don't say this gently because I love this state, and I think this state is gorgeous. I think the downtown skylines – I was looking at the skylines of Minneapolis-St. Paul. They're gorgeous. Duluth is gorgeous. Rochester's pretty. I was down in the Minnesota River Valley. Beautiful country down there. I've been up in the north forests, as beautiful as they get. The prairies out to the west are stunning, especially at sunset. Oh, my God. They're just pretty. But I still think I, – I think the Split Rock Lighthouse could be the prettiest thing in the state that when you're on the shoreline looking up at that thing. And not only that, but I would I'm, – I'm not joking when I say when you think about the prettiest places on the planet that you can go. I just was out at the Parks of the West a year ago. It stands up to that stuff out there. I mean, yeah, you go out to like Zion and Arches and stuff like that and it's spectacular. Split Rock Lighthouse is up there. And it is absolutely gorgeous. If you haven't been, go take a trip up there. You still have a few weeks of summer left before things are done. Native Roots Radio, I Am Awake, that comes up with piloting crew. Stick around for that in the 5 o'clock hour. We are back on a Tuesday with Cooligan. Until then, see ya.